0: Bible's open. Take them out. Let's open them up to Romans chapter 3. For the first three and a half chapters, Paul has gone into great details to make it clearly known that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now he's going to explain how sinners can be saved. Now the theological term is For this salvation is what we would refer to as justification by faith. Now make no mistake, justification by faith is the essence, the theological essence of evangelical Christianity. In John chapter 3 verse number 16, a verse that is familiar to all of us, there we see the gospel uh, declared in a single sentence. In our text this morning, we're going to see the gospel defined in about two paragraphs. And so we need to begin with an understanding of justification so that we're all uh, on the same page. You know, what is it that we mean when we use this word? And so again, a a definition for you on the screens there. justification is the act of God whereby he declares the believing sinner righteous in Christ, on the basis of the finished work of Christ on the cross. That is our working definition for justification. Each part of that definition is important. And we need to just pause and reflect on that definition before we get into our text this morning. To begin with, I want you to understand that justification is an act of God, which means... Since it's an act of God, this is not a process for believers. There are no degrees of justification. Each believer has the the same right standing before God. There's not stages of justification. One believer isn't more justified than another believer. So justification is an act of God. Uh, justification uh, means, therefore, it means that just, justification is something that God does, not something that man does. So sinners cannot justify themselves before God. This is an act of God. It's done by God, and it must be on, done on behalf of man. So, so justification, uh, this is an important distinction. Understand that justification does not make a person righteous. Follow with me. Justification does not mean that God makes us righteous. Justification means that God declares us righteous. So, so justification is a, is a legal matter. So in the place of our own sinfulness, God puts the righteousness of Jesus Christ on our record. And so once he places that righteousness of Christ on our account, nobody can remove that from our account. So we need to understand that justification is not the same thing as sanctification. Those are two separate things. Again, justification is the act of God whereby he declares the believing sinner righteous in Christ on the basis of the finished work of Christ on the cross. So justification is an act of God whereby sanctification is the process by which God uses to make a believer more and more like his son Jesus. So sanctification is a process in the life of a believer. Some of us are at various stages in that sanctification growth in our lives, but justification is an act of God. At the moment of salvation, we are justified. That justification occurs. God declares us to be righteous. Not only does the justification occur, but the sanctification begins in our hearts and in our lives. So when a sinner trusts in Jesus, God declares him to be righteous And once that declaration is made, there's nothing that can remove it, which is a beautiful thing. But questions come up as a result of this. Questions like, how can a holy God declare sinners to be righteous? So in this section of Romans, Paul is going to answer this in a couple of ways. First, he's going to explain justification by faith. And that's the text that we're going to look at this morning. All the way through to the end of chapter 3. So after he explains justification by faith, he is then going to illustrate justification by faith in the lives of Abraham and, and David. So today, we're going to look at his explanation. Next week, we'll begin to unpack the illustration of this justification. So we begin in verse number 21. verse number 21 says uh, but now apart from the law the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets and so what Paul was saying about God's righteousness was not some new concept Paul was saying that a righteousness from God has been manifested it means it has been made clear So the clarity of the righteousness of God was revealed in Jesus. That's where we get the clarity. We we see it in Jesus, not the law. It was what the law and the prophets pointed to. It's what the law and the prophets could only perceive in a shadowy form. And so what the law and the prophets could see at a distance, Jesus brought up close and personal He brings the clarity of the righteousness of God. And so having made a strong case for our universal guilt under the law, Paul now turns to God's gracious plan of salvation. In verse 22, he says, "...even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction." The process that Paul is describing is threefold. It involves God's revelation of his righteousness. It includes the confirmation of that righteousness from the law and the prophets. And then ultimately, it's reception by individual believers. So what does that mean? The only way that we can be acceptable unto God means that God first has to reveal his righteousness. Then that, that, that revealed righteousness has to be confirmed by the law and the prophets. And so once it's been revealed, once it's been confirmed, then ultimately it has to be received by individuals through faith in Jesus Christ. So faith in Christ means believing in Christ. It means placing our confidence In Jesus, that He and He alone can extend the forgiveness of our sins. Christ and Christ alone can can make us right before God. He and He alone, through the working of the Holy Spirit, can empower us to live a life that fully glorifies God in all that we do and all that we say. Which means regardless of our background, regardless of your political affiliation, regardless of your educational background, regardless of your income status, whether you're rich or poor, old or young, fat or skinny, it doesn't matter. Regardless of anything, even regardless of our past behavior, God's solution to sin is available to all who believe in Jesus. Now that is an awesome awareness and understanding. In fact, this verse emphasizes the fact that faith in Jesus Christ is the only requirement for receiving God's righteousness. You see, we all begin in the same place. We all begin spiritually separated from God. All of us begin from a place of of sitting under His wrath and condemnation. And, And for everyone, there is only one solution. There is only one way out. And that is in and through Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus does not mean that we understand everything that Jesus has done. You study our Lord for the rest of your life and not fully comprehend everything and the magnitude of everything that he has done for us. Faith in Christ doesn't mean you have to understand every aspect of what he has done, but it does mean that you believe that Jesus has done everything on our behalf. That's faith in Jesus. Why is that important? Because according to verse number 23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So not only have we all sinned, we all fall short of the glory of God. Now, this is a single Greek verb that's being used in the present tense, which means that's stressing continuous action. So it could be translated, not only do we all fall short of the glory of God, but we keep on falling short of God's glory. And there's no distinction. Jews and Gentiles alike, we all fall short. Although none of us, I would imagine, are as evil as we could be, there's not a part of our being that has not been corrupted by sin. Therefore, we all stand equally guilty before the righteousness and the holiness of God. God has declared everyone to be guilty so that He might extend the free gift of salvation to those that believe in his son. Because verse 24 says, Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So in response to sin, God has stepped in with his provision of righteousness. He says that because he says, because all who believe are, are, are justified. That word justified is a legal term. It, it, it means uh, that we have been declared righteous. To be justified means that you're declared righteous. Justification, remember, is something that God gives as it's an act of God. It's, it's by God. And not only is it an act of God and by God and not by man, justification is something that God gives as a gift. A gift. So that which is a gift is something that is not earned nor is it deserved. And so Paul emphasizes this by saying that we are justified as a gift by his grace. For the past 13 weeks on on Wednesday nights as part of equipping you. In this room, we've been studying through the the attributes of God. Oh, it's been so encouraging week after week to look at a different attribute of our Father. And I wish that everybody would come. I don't understand why there's only a small portion of people get engaged on additional opportunities to study the word of God and be strengthened and encouraged with the fellowship of believers. So I'm speaking to you. I'm trying to look at everybody so you don't think I'm singling you out. I don't understand why, why we become so, so lazy in our approach of studying and knowing the word of God. Early church, they would meet together all the time. We try to be together on Sundays with Bible study and worship and then another opportunity during the week. And know anyway, that's just a plug. We're going to start up again in the summer, and I hope that you'll be involved with it. We have plenty of opportunities. But in this past one, we were going through some attributes of God. Let me just kind of explain it to you this way. There are two kinds of attributes that our Father possesses. They could be referred to as absolute and relative. Think of, when you think of absolute attributes, that has to do with what he is in and of himself. At, absolute attributes. God is wise. God is love. All-knowing. Those are all things like, those are examples of what he is in himself. Then the relative attributes, those are how he relates to the world and his creation. So you have absolute and you have relative. And so why do I say that? Think about this. One of his absolute attributes is love. In fact, 1 John 4, chapter 4, verse 8, says that God is love. That's an absolute attribute of God. Now, when his absolute attribute of love, when it relates to the world and to humanity, that love takes the form of grace and mercy. So, God in His mercy does not give us what we deserve. And God in His grace extends unto us what we do not deserve. And that is all based on His absolute attribute of love. And so, here we see this word uh, is translated as a gift, it's given to us by His grace as a gift. If you look up John chapter 15, verse number 25, you'll see a phrase there that says without a cause. It's the same Greek word. So so here in Romans 3, it's translated as gift. In John chapter 15, it's translated without a cause, which means that we are justified as a gift. We are justified without a cause, which means there's nothing that is within us Or that we could do that would cause God to have to do something on our behalf. No, salvation is solely a result of the grace of God. And so, while it is true that salvation is a gift freely extended to those who believe in his son, it is also true that salvation is not cheap. It's not cheap. Look at verse 24, again, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. There are three words here that kind of express the price that God had to pay for our salvation. And those terms would be redemption, propitiation, and then his blood. And so we'll look at each of those real quickly. Let's start with redemption. Throughout the New Testament, the noun redemption or the verb to redeem means uh, to pay a ransom. It means to uh, to purchase back something that was previously being held in captivity or in bondage. In its original meaning, it was to buy back out of slavery, out of indebtedness, or out of captivity. And so the death of Jesus on the cross of Calvary was the price of payment for our sin. That, that's for everyone who trusts and believes in Him. And this payment of death secured our release of the bondage of sin and of the penalty of sin. It was the, the price that was paid in order to offer redemption. Redemption. Like, this is a, a, a massive price. More than $5 million paid on a ransomware that hijacked up the, the, the gas pipeline. More than that, this is a price that we can never even comprehend. We owed a debt that we had absolutely no way of being able to pay it on our own. God steps in, pays it on our behalf. Through his son. And so that's where we get the propitiation. In in human terms, propitiation means to appease someone who is angry. Uh, Usually uh, by by doing them a favor or, or giving them a gift. It's an appeasement of someone who's angry. But that's in human terms. The Bible doesn't define propitiation in this way. Propitiation means the the satisfying of God's holy law. It's, it's, It's the meeting of the just demands of the holy law. And there's two parts to it. It's the satisfaction of that law. And the other part is so that we might be reconciled with him. That's the end result of the satisfying of God's law. And so how does God's holy law become satisfied or met? Well, that's the third term, and that is through his blood, through the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, the, the word blood in verse number 25 tells us the price by which propitiation was achieved. Jesus had to die on the cross in order to, to satisfy the, the law and to justify the sinner. He had to shed his blood. That's what the law demanded. If you're not familiar with that, Leviticus chapter 17, verse number 11, says that for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Let's talk about the sacrificial system that was established in order to make us right before God in Old Testament times. I mean, this is of great significance. I mean, look at it again. Look, God is saying, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you. He's given us the, the creatures that were used as, as sacrifices. He's given us their life, which was in their blood. And it says, on the altar, to make atonement for your souls. It means it, it, so that it could cover your sin, so that, that, that we could be in a right relationship together. It says, for it is the blood, by reason of the life, that makes atonement. All of the blood sacrifices that are seen throughout the Old Testament were a foreshadowing of the final sacrifice that was given by Jesus at the cross of Calvary. That is why at his death, my one of my favorite aspects to look at when reading through the the narrative of, uh, of his death. That is why at his death, the temple veil was ripped in half from top to bottom. Uh, back at, Why is that significant? Uh, because of what we're told in Leviticus chapter 16. On the Jewish Day of Atonement, there were two goats that were to be presented at the altar. One of them was chosen to be a sacrifice, and another one was prayed over and released into the wilderness. Let's talk about the one that was offered as a sacrifice. The one offered as a sacrifice would have been slain, And then its blood was taken into the Holy of Holies behind the temple veil, into the Holy of Holies, and the blood would have been poured out on the mercy seat. I should have had pictures to illustrate all of this. My bad. Uh, What's the mercy seat? Uh, Inside the Holy of Holies, right, there's a big veil, right? And behind the veil was referred to as the Holy of Holies. Inside the Holy of Holies, or behind that, was the Ark of the Covenant. Think of a, a, a rectangular containment made out of gold, right? The Ark of the Covenant and the lid for the Ark of the Covenant had these two angels on it. And the two angels kind of faced towards each other, heads bowed, wings back. And kind of arched over. And so that was the mercy seat. That was uh, where they believed the very presence of God would dwell on the mercy seat with his people. And so what's in the Ark of the Covenant? If you remove the lid to the Ark of the Covenant, you would see within it the two tablets of the law. And so... The ark contained the tablets of the law with the mercy seat. And so what would happen on the day of atonement, one day out of the year, one day, only one. Only one day of the year, and only one person could go behind there, and that was the high priest. The high priest would take the sacrifice, take the blood, pour it out onto the mercy seat, And so that was the atonement for sin. That was the covering. That was the blood coming between the law and God. And that's why it's so, that's why at Jesus' death, the temple veil is ripped from top to bottom. Why? Because Jesus said himself, It is finished. What's finished? The the way of salvation has been complete, it's done. No more do we have to go behind uh, on the Day of Atonement to offer that blood sacrifice, because the final sacrifice was given in and through Jesus Christ. It's done. So I want you to understand that God never pronounces guilty people as being innocent. Think about it. He never declares the guilty innocent. You see, the atonement pays the penalty for the one who's been declared guilty. If God were to just declare us innocent, then there would be no need for redemption. But we're not innocent. And everybody knows it. Everyone knows. There's not an innocent one among us. Redemption is applied At the point of sentencing, not at the point of judgment. So so not only does Jesus provide himself as the sacrifice necessary in order to reconcile us unto God, but there is a double transfer that happens. When we trust in Jesus, not only is our guilt transferred to Jesus, in exchange for that, his righteousness is transferred to those that believe. It is because of this that God looks at the sinner and declares them justified, declares them righteous. Not because we've been cleared of our sin. No, it's because we've been redeemed from our sin. When Martin Luther, and this was the chapter, this was the text that totally transformed Martin Luther's life. When Martin Luther defined the doctrine of justification in the 16th century, he used a a Latin phrase, simul justus et peccator. I don't speak Latin. That's pretty close. But in it, what that means is, at the same time, just and Sinner. This gets to the heart of justification by faith alone. Once, through faith in Jesus, once you've received the benefit of his propitiation, then we are declared righteous in the sight of God. See, I am a sinner by virtue of my own performance. But... I am just by virtue of Jesus' righteousness. So back to verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Real quickly, there's that last phrase at the end of verse number 25 that can be a bit confusing. It says, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. So the question becomes: Did God forgive sins in the past by looking forward towards Jesus's future work? Perhaps did He simply overlook them, knowing that Jesus's future death would uh, would settle the sin problem? I mean, I, I've wrestled through this one a lot uh, over the past couple of weeks. I think the more I read it, the more I study, I see how God was forbearing in the sense that He could have just dealt with sin immediately, and totally wiped out all of humanity and would have been justified in doing that. But he had a plan. He had a plan in and through his son that that his son would come and pay the sacrifice necessary in order to make us right before God. So, So how can God be just and justifier in one? Well, the answer is in Jesus. When Jesus suffered the wrath of God on the cross for the sins of the world, then he fully met the demands of God's law and he fully expressed the extent of God's love. Just and justifier. In chapter 2, verse number 4, Paul said that God was forbearing Because he wanted to let people, uh, lead people to repentance. Here it says that he's forbearing because he anticipated the provision for sin and the death of his son. So Jesus' sacrifice fully met the demands of the law. Jesus offers the full and final payment to our sin debt for those who believe. Now, now Paul's going to wrap up this section and this chapter with a series of questions and answers. I love that about Paul. Paul in his writing, he's anticipating, hey, when I make this theological declaration, there's probably going to be some confusion, some potential for misunderstanding. So he just addresses that in a series of questions and answers. And so let's look at there's there's 5 Three of them are in verse 27, there's two in verse 29, and then there's one in verse number 31. We'll go through them real quickly. Look at verse 27. So if it's all justification through faith alone, by God's grace alone, verse 27, where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No. But by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So the first question, then then where's the boasting? In other words, how can we as Jewish people boast and take credit for anything in our salvation? You seem to be saying that we have nothing to boast about, but that doesn't make sense because if we're adherents to the law, then surely we should have something to boast in, something to take credit for. But Paul says, no, nope, it's excluded. No, since justification is by grace through faith Boasting of one's own accomplishments, boasting of one's works of righteousness is completely eliminated. It's removed. It's off the table. Which then goes to those next two questions. By what kind of law? Of works? They're still clinging to try to figure out some way to take credit for their spiritual condition. And Paul says, no, literally not at all. It's not by by works. He says, no, but by a law of faith. Doing works or observing the law is no basis for boasting. Why? Because the law cannot justify a person. The law wasn't given for that purpose. Lest we forget, why do we have the law or why was the law in place in the first place? Look back at verse number 20. There he says, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So Paul then summarizes in verse number 28, for we maintain. Here the the verb is being used as, uh, could be defined as to reckon. It it means that, that we've come to a settled conclusion. So so we've come to a settled conclusion that a man is justified, a man is declared righteous by faith apart from works of the law. I mean, this verse, more than any other verse in all of Scripture, this verse is the verse that most clearly articulates the doctrine of faith, the justification by faith alone. That's it. Faith. And so the next two questions. The next two questions kind of cover the same issue, but from a slightly different perspective. Verse 29, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. In other words, God does not have two ways of salvation. God does not offer one way of salvation for the Jews and one way of salvation for everybody else. It doesn't work that way. He is one God with one way of salvation. And that one way of salvation is available to Jew and Gentile alike. Now to us, this profound truth is a beautiful reality. You need to understand, when it was heard for the first time, this would have been absolutely shocking and offensive. When Paul is saying, no, there's not separate ways. It's, a, it's available through Jesus to all who believe. Doesn't matter where you're from, doesn't matter your, your heritage, it's for those who believe. If salvation was through the law, then man can have something to boast about. But the principle of faith makes it impossible for us to boast. Uh, Maybe I should say it like this. When a believer is justified by faith alone, then they cannot boast of their faith, but they can boast of their Savior. Let those who boast, boast in the Lord. This what the scripture tells us. All right, final question. Final question is found in verse number 31. Uh, Do we then nullify the law through faith? May never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Uh, The purpose of the law has been fulfilled. Its place in God's salvific plan has been confirmed when it leads an individual to faith in Jesus Christ. Real quick, Galatians chapter 3. I shared this verse a couple of weeks ago. But Galatians chapter 3 says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we might be justified by faith. The law was always pointing people to Jesus. In verse 25... But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Now that Jesus has clearly manifested the righteousness of God, we are no longer under the law. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So from Romans chapter 3 verses 22 through 31, in those 10 verses... Paul uses the word faith eight times, eight times. He's consistent in his declaration that faith in Christ is not a result of or works of the law. It's, not, it's only faith in Christ that salvation is possible. No, not by works, not by nationality, not by any other means. This doctrine of justification by faith alone does not go against the law of God. In fact, it establishes it, the text says. God obeyed his own law in working out the way of salvation. Jesus, in his life and death, completely fulfilled the demands of the law. And so what we're going to see beginning in chapter 4, from chapter 4 to chapter 8, we're going to see how Paul explains how justification by faith alone in Christ alone is in complete harmony with Old Testament scriptures. And he's going to begin that explanation with the father of the Jewish nation. And so next week, we'll see justification by faith alone illustrated in the life of Abraham. And I hope that you'll come back and that you'll listen. And I hope that you'll study his word this week. May you know the only hope that we have to be declared righteous before God is by faith in Jesus Christ. And if you have faith in Christ then we need to be committed to the process of sanctification in our lives so that we can become more and more like him, so that we can clearly declare the love of God to a world that is in desperate need of coming to know God through faith in Jesus. I want to pray for us. Let's just have a little extended time of prayer if we could. This is the hardest time in a service, week in and week out. No doubt, some of you have already checked your time and be like, "Eh, we're a little bit over today. Can I just get out of here? I suppose if you want, you can get up and walk out right now. But sometimes I struggle with the placement and the order of service. Because honestly, I think we spend the least amount of time doing what we should be spending the most amount of time doing. And that is prayerfully considering and responding to the word of God being declared in our presence. And so we're going to pray a little bit. There'll be some of us up here in the front. We'd love to pray with you and for you. There's music playing, Micah. Can you play a little something for us? I could stretch it out long, but I do want you to consider. Do you have a relationship with God? Have you been justified through faith in His Son? has, Has your sinfulness been credited to Jesus and His righteousness been credited to your account? Do you believe? For those that believe, then do a spiritual checkup this morning. How are you living that life of belief? Are you struggling with sin? Are you struggling with rebellion and disobedience? May you spend this time to confess those things before God and may you know that he hears all of it. Let's pray and let's respond to his word.